This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the way to a motherfucker like KTP's remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Well, I'm here. I'm cute as shit. Oh, whoa, whoa, skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. You nigga naked in the shower with your clothes on. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam Lacrosse. Can you dig it? I certainly can because I am here with the living legend, the boxing legend, the writing legend, Carolyn Dennis-Willingham. Carolyn, how are you doing, my dear? I'm great. How are you doing, Sam? I'm very well because I get to see you twice in a morning, actually. Because So Carolyn is a boxing teammate of mine, and I did not know this, but she has been a veteran of the sport. She throws, I think, the best left hook I've ever seen a non-professional boxer throw in my entire life. And she hit me in the, the left hand because she is also right hand. So she hit me in the left hand with it several times this morning. And it's still as mean and packs as just as much of a punch as everyone does. So she is a boxing extraordinaire. But what she, we're on to talk about today is more about her background as a writer, her background in general, and her new book, which is very exciting, that came out um, a month ago-ish or a couple weeks ago. May 9th, it came out. May 9th, okay. So a little over a month ago, by the time we're recording, this is uh, June 19th. Happy Juneteenth, everyone, by the way. So this is recording on June 19th. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, happy Juneteenth. And so we are recording this today. Hopefully this will be a really interesting conversation into the minds of a writer. I always like talking to writers. I've had my friend Quentin on. I've had my friend Kel on. I've had you know a couple other people who have uh, really written, but you have, you've really dedicated yourself to this over a while. Like you have a lot of published works you've done children's books you're doing fiction you told me about a new book idea you had this morning which is super interesting and so uh maybe just we'll start out with that carolyn so give me a little bit just kind of a a background of who you are so like what has your life been like that has really led you to delve fully into your writing career at this point mm. wow that's a, a a big question um it's a big question <laughs> <laughs> well you know i uh started writing when i was uh gosh, in my teens, you know, that age where so many mixed emotions come in. And um, and so you have to have an avenue for which to, you know, express yourself. And you can't always do it um, verbally. And um, you don't feel comfortable maybe doing it verbally with, you know, your peers or your family or whatever. And so I just began journaling and, uh, and writing. And so, um, you know, I've kind of uh, evolved from there. I decided, uh, and I wasn't a good reader. It was interesting too, because, you know, growing up, I, I really sucked at reading. It was just, okay. uh, it took me, yeah, it took me a long time to really figure out how to be a reader. And the first book I even read was To Kill a Mock Mockingbird. I was 14. And that okay. was the first one I read from cover to cover. 
And that's when I realized, you know what? Books can be fun. And mm-hmm. so um, I realized that, you know, okay, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to, I'm going to see what I can do. Um, and I think it was the first, the first thing I actually wrote with uh, a friend, we co-wrote a screenplay or a script, I should say. And it, it was, I, I still have that. And I guess we were probably 14, you know, 15 when we wrote it. And it was absolutely terrible. Uh, and uh, you know because I look back on it now but the process itself was so engaging and so much fun and I realized that I really like to um, insert myself into the characters personalities or I will invent new characters that uh, they come out of nowhere so I guess um, it was really back in before 2011 before my father uh, passed away um he had talked to me for years and years about growing up in west texas during the depression and about his abusive father and so i thought you know i think what i'll do for my dad is i will write a story uh, and I didn't know where it would go, but um, I would write, uh, I'm going to write all these things down because you couldn't make it up. You know, these things that he would come up with, you just couldn't make it up. So anyway, I started jotting down all these things. I, in fact, I, I took him back to the place of his birth um, in Rotan, Texas, Ranger, Texas, and then where he lived in Ranger, Texas. And this is all West Texas. This is the middle of, you know, nowhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, so we took a drive and then we, we ended up, you know, uh, of course, talking a lot. And then I got to see all those places that uh, he had been mentioning for years and years. And anyway, so he before he died, he did get to see the first draft of the book I called and, and was uh, ended up being called A No Hill for a Stepper. And it also has to do with the boxing and boxing career. In fact, okay. remind, you know, make sure that you get a, a copy of that. But uh, No Hill for a Stever was published in 2011. And it was based on his life. I fictionalized it just enough uh, for readers' interest, you know, to yeah. add a little here's and there's to it. But basically everything in it is true. Uh, he, he wanted to he became a boxer in the army and he wanted to go back and pummel his dad at by the end of the book so um anyway so then i wrote that and uh i love doing the research for it um and the next book i wrote was called uh the last bordello and that again is research oriented uh it was based on the real madam fanny porter who became uh, famous for harboring Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I fictionalized around that, went to San Antonio where, you know, this took place and uh, uh, visited where the location where she had her bordello and, uh, you know, looked up, of course, did research on all the people that were there at the time. And uh, anyway, so I, I did that. And then, of course, 
this last one, Distilling Lies, is also historical fiction. And uh, it, this one is set in 1928, mm -hmm. Prohibition. So as far as the writing, I'm not sure. Did I even answer that question, Sam? No, and I, I think I think you did great. I mean, that's all so interesting. I think the big question that I had off of off of that um, was that was there is there something? I mean, you seem to be obviously the one with uh, with your father. Obviously, that's very personal to you. Um, are you Texas born and raised? I don't know if I ever asked you this question. Yes, Austin. Okay, okay, gotcha. So. Overall, what what attracted you about, you know, because all of your books are historical fiction, they all seem to have like that general same ethos of where they're going. Like what attracted you about that specific genre and that specific type of story to really dive into when you really dedicated yourself to it after you had that encouragement and that conversation from your father that ultimately turned into your first book? Uh, what encouraged me to write that? Yeah, yeah. like just, just about like, you know, why is historical fiction, I would say, why is that what you gravitate to the most? Yeah. That is curious, and I've thought about that a lot about myself. And I think it's it's because I want to visit places that I haven't been. You know, I already live in this present. You know, I see this present. Uh, um, I live in it. Um, you know, before towards the future, but I haven't experienced the past, obviously. So. I want to learn about places and times and things that actually, you know, happened before I was born. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's funny because as a kid, I hated, you know, my history classes. Hated. Oh, really? Hated. Okay. I mean, I could care less about any of that. And it wasn't until, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago or, well, I guess it was No Hill for a Stepper. Uh, that started it but um, wow how things have changed and how human beings and uh, you know evolve and how cultures uh, evolve and uh, society evolves and our, our thinking evolves and um, I think it's just fascinating to learn about those times, you know, the struggles that people have gone through to get to where they are. Um, you know, the, the struggle, for example, in the last bordello, there's a, a conflict between, you know, obviously the women in the bordello had their jobs as prostitutes because it was a way to live their lives. They had income, right? In, right? On the other side, there was the temperance movement where the women mm -hmm. were saying, you know, hey, we, we've got to cut this vice stuff, you know, mm -hmm. uh, two groups of totally different women that are struggling to, you know, uh, make ends meet or make society better or, you know, just be able to put food on their table. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and same thing with the Great Depression about the struggles of these human beings who are trying uh, desperately just to survive. You know, uh, they can't think much about themselves or as in your book, you know, can't think much about, you know, what their goals are other than eating, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, protecting their children if possible. And then uh, with this latest one, of course, there's uh, prohibition is occurring, but the women had their rights to vote eight years before, you know, yep. when, uh, 
looks at in 1928, and then of course we had the right to vote in 1920. So, um, I think it's just the evolution that I look at. The evolution talking about history and the evolution of what human beings go through to that lead us to where we are today. And I think yeah. that's what fascinates me most about writing the historical fiction. And I just I love the research. You know, I love learning. You know, uh, about things that. I completely, if I learned them when I was, uh, when I was young, I certainly didn't remember them, but you know, yep. it forces you to, to learn, kind of stretch outside that box and to learn kind of where you came from. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a beautiful answer. I, I think, especially when you take, um, and the other element is that all of the leads for your books are all women. And I think that throughout that time, throughout history, I think the common thing, and you could feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about this is that you know, basically the, like women have changed and their roles in society have changed so much, I would say throughout the last hundred years, much more than a role like me, for example, as a man could probably have. So that also adds an interesting twist to it, where you can say it's not only the history of like the time or the country or the place that's different, but, you know, the role of, you know, men, women, what they were in society, what was acceptable, what wasn't acceptable, kind of the taboos and everything. So that's, that adds another, yeah, another layer of fascination onto it. And I want to put a pin in that and go right back to it. But I know that you, I actually don't know what your role in this was, but so you had a role and you were an educator for a long time and you worked with uh, little like children and education and, you know, those type of different roles. So I'm, I'm curious about this because I love teachers and I wanted to be a teacher if I didn't do what I was doing now with my, with my sales job. But how did how did your early work as a teacher of children's, particularly as a children's teacher, play into the way that you that you wrote? Did, it, did anything kind of like inspire you to kind of, you know, explore that creative side? Because children have like no limits on what their imagination can tell them about anything. And so I would imagine it's probably a pretty good place where that can at least develop in proxy to something else, whether you didn't really delve into it until later in your life. But what was that kind of inspiration for your life? Or did, was it kind of just a very compartmentalized thing? Oh, uh, you know, it's funny that you asked me that early childhood education. I mean, from day one, uh, well, maybe not day one, but from a very early age, I was always fascinated in young children and what what their thinking processes were when they went about, uh, you know, ma manipulating their environment, for example. And um, I had this very interesting experience when I was in high school. We went to visit a, I think back then they called it a mental retardation center, you know, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. a little bit better now about what we, you know, with our terms. Um, and it was our, it was a psychology class. So we took this field trip to this place and, uh, it was, you know, extremely depressing. Hopefully, you know, I mean, we've come a long way since then. But, you know, here's a bunch of high school students. We're all trying to learn our identities, figure out who we are in life and whatnot. And I'll never forget, there was a young, um, I think she was five, uh, a young girl with Down syndrome. And for some, she looked around at our group and for some reason she comes up to me and she climbs up my body as if I were a tree and she clings to me 
Now, I kind of looked around and the, my peers in my class were kind of like, you know, like, oh my God, you know, yeah. like, yeah. like horrified. I thought it was the most magnificent feeling in the world. Yeah. And I clung to her almost as much. I get goosebumps when I think about it. I clung yeah. to her almost as much as she clung to me. The I could have stayed there for a long time. And the the teacher or some not my teacher, but somebody there at the facility had to peel her away from me. And I realized as I look back on that, I realized, you know, I really cared less about what my peers thought of me at that moment in time. You know, they were a little horrified, you know, that whole situation, everything was like scary. To me, it, it was such a great learning experience. That little girl became my teacher. And, you know, how we have so many teachers in life that just could come to us and just, you know, be our teacher for five minutes, but it lasts a lifetime, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, from that, I realized that the psychology um, study of emotions, study of how we develop as human beings was very important to me. Uh, fairness was very important to me. Yeah. Uh, how we treat other people was very important to me. Uh, there's another example of uh, high school, and uh, we had a, a field trip, I'm sorry, not a field trip, a, a fire drill, and uh, there was, you know, back then we called them the jocks, right, and we had separate groups, we had the jocks, and we had the hippies, and, you know, um, yeah. the shit kickers, and, you know, and I was kind of in the middle, uh, I wouldn't have been the shit kicker, but I was definitely in the middle of the kind of hippie, but mm -hmm. not the complete stoner, right? And um, there was a, a, a kid in my speech class who wore very, very thick glasses. And in order to read, he had to put his uh, book in front of his glasses about an inch away oh wow and uh and so you know i didn't know him other than him being in my my uh debate class speech class and um we went out they did the fire drill and i'm now i was a person too who i wasn't the kind of person that would i wasn't a leader i was kind of in between uh, I, I was a listener more than anything right mm -hmm. I, I took things in. I took in my environment. I watched. Uh, I developed some kind of a sense of, of fairness. I'm not sure exactly where all that came from, but um, so the fire drill happened, and I was standing close to this the the student, you know, with the thick glasses, when a jock comes up and pushes him, as we're outside, right, and pushes him and laughs. And this kind of meekish Carolyn goes up to this jock, you know, and, and says, what the hell do you think you're doing? And what was so interesting about that is that it came out so fast without any thought whatsoever. Yeah. 
you know, it was a just spontaneous gut feeling. You know, I, it's it's very difficult to explain. It's it was a it was like, like instinctive almost. Yeah, it was instinctive. It was yeah. totally instinctive. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I kind of shocked myself. I'm like, oh, did I yeah. a jock? Oh my god! You know, but I realized that this is something I I need to explore further. Why? You know, am I like that? So anyway, yes, uh, I ended up. Um, realizing that, okay, first of all, I think I want to go in and study uh, special ed. So I was going to UT, enrolled in some, you know, special ed classes, and I went, wow, okay, I've already learned a lot, but as complicated as this is, early childhood development is even more so. There are so many facets of, of, uh, of just learning about uh, quote unquote, you know, uh, children without uh, learning differences, for example. And so I decided to go into early childhood development. And that's what I ended up, you know, uh, being my major. And um, so I, you know, uh, taught for a long time. I uh, directed a, a child development center for over 11 years. I taught anti-bias education through that avenue and um, uh, taught about er emergent curriculum. And so I, I learned a lot about uh, over the time, you know, I, I did speaking engagements. And um, so, yes, I would say, you know, early childhood development definitely has influenced everything that I do have done in my writing. Maybe not so much the last Bordello, mm -hmm. uh, but, but definitely this last book, Distilling Lives, where, you know, a, a, a young woman, uh, 17 years old, um, is still coming into herself and learning about herself. Um, interesting enough, there is another character in my book, his name is Scooter who is several years younger, but also has learning differences. And um, um, and it's their, her human connection also with, with that yeah. uh, boy. So anyway, huge thing. Um, okay, Sam, so <laughs> that was long-winded answer to your no, question. No, no. I, I'm very glad you expanded on that. We've never talked about this. My, my, um, so I have two siblings. My little sister has autism. So my sister is about 14 and a half months younger and she's not, she's kind of in the middle of the spectrum where she's not a super high functioning uh, autistic person, but she's not a very, you know, low functioning autistic person either, but she still has a lot of difficulties and everything. And I don't know, um, if you know, um, anything about like Myers-Briggs or Enneagram tests or anything like that. W what's your Enneagram? Do you know? Oh, no, I don't know that. I know Myers-Briggs. Okay. Okay. And so I, I was much more of a Myers-Briggs person, but my friend Katie Brooks is a big Enneagram person. And so I took a test and she predicted the right one for me, what was going to be. And I'm an Enneagram eight. And basically the defining characteristic of an Enneagram eight is that, and I'm not big into personality tests at all, but this one is like just so apparently obvious to me that I thought it was interesting. And I, I, I'm curious to get your perspective on this is that the defining characteristic of an Enneagram eight is that they are really obsessed with justice and they have a really good sense of like what right and wrong is. And I 100% attribute that to my younger sister and my younger brother who also had some mild learning disabilities because he kind of had a stunted perception due to my sister's disability and kind of filtered down to him. 
And so I remember I was always the one who stuck up for the kid who was getting picked on or whatever. I wanted everyone to be included. I wanted everyone to be this, that, or whatever. I remember like I'm going through this dispute now with my publisher where basically, you know, Scribe Media, one of the biggest publisher, professional publishers in the world just imploded and the leaders are kind of getting off, in my opinion, scot-free while other people have paid tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to get these things published. And like, I'm going to be the one I'm I, so long story short, like I'm always the one to like say the thing, draw the line, you know, confront the bully. I hate bullies conf like, you know, see about like everything else like that. So I'm curious. So, and you saying all those things, it really kind of, I see why I think there's kind of an undercurrent to why I think we gravitate towards each other from that sense, even just, it's kind of like a subconscious thing where you have this experience where you're dealing all the time with this group of folks that really does not have a person sticking up for them a lot of the time. And you have to be the person to say like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to help with this. I'm going to say the thing. I'm going to help this person. I'm going to go out of my way to do whatever. And that kind of, I think filters a lot into what I write about, what I, how I conduct myself in the world, how I talk to other people, hopefully, and you know, all that coming together. So that's, um, that's, so it's not, not it was, it was a long-winded answer, but I mean, it was a great answer. So that's awesome. You know, I really appreciate you saying that too. I, I never really kind of put it all together, but I, I, uh, you know, in your eloquent terms that you use and, and you also used in your book, by the way, that I really, that really has inspired me. Um, you know, I, I do, I, children that when I'm out and about in the world and, and I see something that is unfair, uh, especially when it comes to children, I, you know, I have been known to go up to parents and say certain things, you know, that mm. probably were none of my business, but, uh, I, if I saw some kind of misjustice, you know, injustice, I should say, um, you know, I can't keep my mouth shut. Yeah, I, I know. I know there, if I can, if there's this, I don't know if I've actually told this on my podcast before, but, and we'll move back onto the writing in like two seconds, but I think, I think just kind of, you know, yeah. And you'll probably be able to relate to this at least in some sense, but I, um, I'm an ambassador for a group called Rally Cap Sports, which is a charity organization that's based up. I'm from Ohio. I don't know if you knew that. So I grew up in I grew up in Cleveland and then I went to school in Columbus, Ohio, where Ohio State was. It's where I went for school. And then in the top left of the state is a place called Toledo, Ohio, which has a university called Bowling Green. And so Bowling Green was the birthplace of this charity called Rally Cap Sports, where we take college students and, you know, make them or, or not make them, I should say, but, you know, we do uh, team sports with special education kids in the local community, special needs kids in the community. We do basketball, football, dance, cheerleading, you know, everything of that sort to really, you know, get awesome. them. Yeah. And get them really, it was, it was the, it was so fun. It still is so fun. And so there was this one, there was this one time um, we were doing a basketball camp or a basketball season inside of rally cap sports. And so there were two kind of, you know, very prominent special needs sports charities in Ohio State. Ohio State is a massive school. It has third largest public university in the country, has over a thousand student organizations. And so we were kind of like the little, the little brother to this big brother student organization about, you know, like, you know, special needs sports and, and everything inside of the community. But we still had a pretty good following and we had a lot of really good volunteers and we had a lot of, uh, you know, kids that really liked, you know, our students that we were with. And I was the vice president of this charity at the time. And so we were, um, we had the the court for an hour and then we had to give it up to this other charity to have for an hour or two. So we had an hour long block. And so um, we're finishing up and we're finishing up our, our thing. We're doing like shooting stuff and everything. 
And, you know, we see the other, uh, the chair, the other charity kind of assembling on the sideline of the court, ready to come over and take over our spots. And so we're moving our kids and our volunteers off the court. But um, I had uh, this, this, this girl that I loved, I absolutely adored. Her name is Chloe. And so Chloe um, had a thing. And I think like every, it's funny how every like special needs uh, person has like their, their ticks or their one responses to something they can do when they basically have like a certain thing. And hers was that if she felt like she wanted to either, you know, be funny or if she like felt, you know, kind of like, you know, scared or something, she would just sit down. And so she would just sit down and she wouldn't move. And she, she had to like really be kind of talked up to kind of get up and, and walk to the place we were going to. And so she, I think was just being playful and she sits down like right in the middle of the basketball court. And so the rest of the kids and the volunteers are off the basketball court. And then the other kids and their people just come rushing onto the court. And, you know, they're around like my kid and they're kind of doing everything where they're like, they're throwing balls all over the place. They're running all over the place. Like they're going to hit her. And so I go up to, it's, it's so funny when I, when I tell the story, like the, the faculty member was uh, my statistics professor or was my statistics professor at one point. She was kind of a uh, career academic. Uh, she looked like um, uh, Edna from the Incredibles, like really big glasses, like really tough <laughs> black haired bond and everything. And so like, she was a, she was an intimidating woman and she was very, very tough on her students. And she was really tough on, on me and we didn't really get along all that great. And so I, I go up to her and, you know, this is one of the most, I was in the business school. She was one of the most powerful people in the business school. And so like, I was really kind of, I was kind of, you know, intimidated by her for a long time, but like in this situation, like when I'm in that environment, like that fear goes to like negative seven. And so I go up to this lady and I say, you know, ma'am, like I still have a kid on the court, like, and she's going to get hurt. Like, please get your kids off the court. And she tells me, and she, she did the very wrong thing by saying this. She, she tells me, um, you know, Hey, you guys have the court from one to two. We have it from two to three or whatever the time is like, you know, that's not my problem. And I, I get up, I, I, I like, I, I don't think I've ever been this angry in my life. I get up like two inches from this lady's face. I say, get your fucking kids off this court right now, or I or I will make your life a living hell. I promise you get this kid, get them away from my kid, get off the court right now. And then she starts realizing I'm serious. And she's like, Oh, I, I don't know. Like the kids are on the court, like whatever. And, and I just, I basically say like, I tell the, I tell the kids like, get away from my kid. I eventually talk Chloe up. We walk off the court, but that was kind of when I knew. So when my friend Katie told me about like the whole justice thing and everything surrounding it, I was like, Oh, well, that's where that comes from. And so I always, I always tell that story about kind of, everything else like it, it summons like a um a deep part of you that you don't really know kind of what your experience probably was with this uh with, with, yeah with this with this jock in in your high school class who made fun of who made fun of that student and it's kind of like you you gather a sense of courage when you know that something is wrong for the people that are wired like we are to kind of just step up when you don't even know that it's a possibility to step up yeah and you realize where did this courage come from you know it's like you know, it's not, you, it's not a pre-thought, you know, you're not thinking in a head, well, I really should do something, you know, maybe I should step in. You don't even think that way. You, you just step in, mm -hmm. you know, there's right. no thought. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's very, that's so cool. And I, I would like to, talk, maybe we can do a second podcast where we can talk more about that, but one <laughs> yeah, pivot, yeah, pivot back to more of the, more of the writing stuff. So, so I know that you said that you're, um, that your father really encouraged you a lot to pursue, you know, this, your writing career and your passion about writing, but did you have any really personal or professional role models you looked up to in writing? I know you said uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was a very big inspiration to starting your, starting your career. Um, did you have any authors that you really looked up to both either in your personal, like around where you grew up or like in the greater culture where you said like, wow, I want to look 
if I could write something like that, like that'd be really, really awesome. Like I, I remember like when I was growing up, I loved um, I love the work of F. Scott Fitzgerald. I still do. I read The Great Gatsby is my favorite book. I've read it probably over 50 times at this point. Um, I love uh, Chuck Palahniuk's work. I love Cormac McCarthy's work. I, I, I kind of have those different, and I'm not even a fiction writer, but I kind of, and, and you know, nonfiction, I like people like Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray and, and people that are kind of in that, in that brand as well. And so like, I have the, these kind of like pantheon figures of who I think are just fantastic writers, but what were the, what were some of those people for you? If you had any of them, who did you really look up to in the space? You know, uh, I read, uh, mostly I read fiction. I've read a lot of poetry. Uh, I guess I forgot to mention that as well, that, you know, uh, I, I wrote tons of poetry before I even began my, you know, writing novels. Super cool. Uh, and so Emily Dickinson, of course, stands out. Yes, yes. Hope is a thing with feathers, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's funny. I think, I think characters stand out to me more than authors do, which is kind 100%. of a bad thing to say for, you know. No, it's not. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, it's not a, you know, uh, uh, not giving the uh, authors uh, very much credit when I say that, uh, but on the other hand, it does. Yes, it of course. Make those characters, um, but I, I do think characters like you know, for example, you know, Scout and Kill a Mockingbird, or mm -hmm. even uh, you know, characters that I might not even remember their names, but I remember their struggles. You know. Um, for me, characters, you know, I, I, I know I'm kind of going in a different direction here, oh, but please. there are, you know, it's one of the most interesting things for me about writing is that when a character pops up out of nowhere and then all of a sudden they're like, they become like your fav favorite character. And it's mm -hmm. like, where did that person come from? Yeah. You know, and, and they become a huge part of your book. And, but there they are, they're just like knocking on your door saying, what, let me in, you know, mm -hmm. you're getting me. And I'm like, wait, who are you? And, you know, but there they are in, in your, in your, uh, in your head and then in your book. Yeah, so. absolutely. Emily Dickinson is fantastic. And, and I, and I do want to, I know, you, you know, you and I, we talked, you know, before we did this interview about the, just the passion you have for character development and your characters. And that's a big part of what I wanted to get into later. And I, I think what I wanted to kind of start with forming that is like the biggest thing that I think is the biggest struggle for writers in general. And I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I think that in the crafting of your specific style and the confidence that you have to have in your specific style of writing is really hard because of people like, you know, you say you care what people think about your writing and you want it to sound like maybe you want it to sound like so much like Emily Dickinson, but you don't have your own individual twist on it. Or like, I want to sound so much like F. Scott Fitzgerald, for example, that I don't, that I lose all of my individuality that I put into side of the craft. So when, like, how long would, did you say, or would you say rather that you took to really develop your specific style and said, you know, basically like, this is how I write. This is who I am. This is what I want to portray with everything. Did that take a long time? Did it take like a short time? Or how long did that take to develop for you out of curiosity? Hmm. How long did it take to develop that? Um, I think I'm still developing it. You know, I, I think yeah. it's a process. I think, uh, you know, um, 
in the writing process, you it's just like anything else, you know, you, you go through phases where, you know, something works, something doesn't work. And then, and then you, um, you delve deeper. And the more I think you delve deeper into like your, your own person, you know, the more you can delve deeper into your characters and, yeah. uh, and their emotions and their feelings and, um, you know, uh, try to make them more believable and, uh, somebody that your, you know, reader can relate to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, that's a fantastic answer. I think that it's, um, a lot of that has to do, you're very heavy on research as well. So you do a lot of research for your projects. And so that, that was another thing you really kind of harped on and wanted to discuss. So like, what is your overall process for doing like a historic, one of your historical fiction novels, for example, I know the first one you had a lot of familial influence, you grew up down South. And so you probably have a lot of context you provide from your personal life and personal experience, but where, where I would say, like, how do you pivot? How do you do research for your projects, for example? Like, where does the inspiration come from to say, I want to look at Prohibition, for example, and like to really dive into it as your latest book does, or something like the temperance movement or something like one of those people or like, you know, your father's life, for example, like where, what is your process like for getting information for books? I know you say you like to visit the physical locations, you like to go down and you like to, I'm assuming, read some things or go to everything else. So I'm fascinated by that. So what does that look like for you usually? It looks like me going down this long, this hole of, you know, uh, internet searches. Right, right. I will, yes. I will start writing something and then uh, I'll think, oh yeah, I guess I better look that up. You know, what, uh, so Butch Cassidy, what, did, what exactly did he look, look like again you know then mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go and look up butch cassidy and oh yeah i guess i need to write that he had that scar you know on his chin and then that will lead me to something else and then uh oh well then who's this other kirkpatrick guy you know well, what did he play in it could i add him in here and then then i go down that hole and then you know and the, the temperance people and then uh, what what's okay and who was that you know carrie nation she's the one that oh yeah she had that hatchet and then i mean i will i just <laughs> i don't plan it out very well and say okay i'm gonna i have to research this 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 for this chapter or this this book mm -hmm. it just uh organically evolves if i'm going to write about that oh i better look that up and make sure that i'm right and even in this last book you know you give you an example um i would uh write things i'd research it and then my editor would come back and, and say oh you know that didn't happen until a year later i'm like what you know yeah i, I really thought that i had that right you mm -hmm. know oh, yeah that, yeah well, that you have you know that wasn't published until two years later I'm like really you know because you know I either I got just you know things confused or I looked at the wrong site and she found the right site you know um but uh, anyway yeah I, I I still love doing that you mm -hmm. know even if I'm not writing you know I'll have a thought on something I go oh I better look that up you know yeah. because I need I think I think one of the greatest things for a human being to be is curious. Yes. That if, that if you're not curious, you're not going to move forward. And, you know, I, I kind of want to move forward. I want to, you know, I want to learn as much as I can in, in this time that I have. And, uh, and so being curious, I think is, is a key to uh, helping with our, you know, intelligence and helping with our, 
you know, interpersonal relationships. And, um, you know, uh, I just think it's key. So. Yeah, I, I absolutely. Well, it, it's interesting you say that too, because, you know, I, I've been, I've thought about that in relation because I, my second book is coming out later this year and I'm currently writing. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank awesome. you. So yeah, thank you. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. First, and then I'm, I love the first one. Thank you. I appreciate that, it. I told you this morning too. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, that, no, please, please. That uh, your your book that um, you know that I just finished your first novel, your first book, um, it inspired me. Uh, you know, you uh, brought in a lot of your personal experiences, and but I took the whole of it, and as I, I took the whole, you know, of course, there's a lot of wonderful bits and pieces within, but there's also that the entire thing that makes forces you to think and it helps me it helped me um you know to uh to think more too about you know where i want to go as, as a person and where i want to go as far as a writer um so kudos for that so what tell me about <laughs> that second now the second novel yeah. Well, 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 first of all, that's a huge compliment coming from you. So thank you. I, I realize someone is accomplished and is, you know, and is a good of liver of life as I know you are. That really means a lot coming from me. So thank you. And and so I'm working on the set or I, I've been done with the second one since December. I'm not quite ready to reveal a lot about the the topic of it yet in terms of everything. I have a big announcement planned for sometime, I believe, in October because I want it to come out. Um, it's going to come out in November, hopefully still. And obviously, I still have to work through some things with my publisher to really get some stuff straight. Um, in terms of my contract and everything surrounding it, but that's beside the point. So I think I have the second book coming out in November. I'm current. I started writing the third one, um, it, you know, in er earlier this month. But before that, there was like six months of six months of like hardcore. I've never done this amount of research for a book in my life because the main difference between our styles, it primarily one of them is that you write primarily fiction. I write primarily nonfiction stuff, and I do have plans. I have some ideas for screenplays and novels that I want to expand on. I have some things written down for those, but um, right now it's primarily nonfiction. And so like, I think the interesting thing, kind of what you said earlier is that like, I have to make sure like all my P's and Q's, all my citations for my nonfiction stuff is like, is like perfect. And yeah. I think one of the cool things about fiction, and I think you put it in a way that I never really thought of it about, about this point is that with fiction, you don't really, you don't really have to cite your sources necessarily. You don't, you can kind of just blend it into the overall story and really just, and you use it as kind of like a context builder to everything else. And so is, you know, it's, it's a really cool, I would say dichotomy between the two of those. And I imagine it's probably something that makes, you know, you as a fiction writer, really excited to do something. You don't really have to be as like by the book, like I have to do all these citations. Like my, my next book that's coming out later this year, I think has like 943 citations in the back of it. Oh my and, gosh. and so like, you know, I have, and, and so I have like a bunch of all that stuff and getting that stuff together was hard, but you yes. know, and it was, and it was worth it for the, um for the book itself. But I would say overall, you know, it's just, it's very, very, I would say, you know, time consuming. It's, it's, you know, it's, you know, I, it's monotonous, it's hard, but you know, I would probably have to say that's a lot of the appeal of what draws you into fiction is that, you can have these contexts from these historical events or whatever happened in these news articles, but you don't necessarily have to use it as like an anchor. You use it as kind of like another just ingredient in the overall recipe of how you write. That's absolutely true. And uh, yeah, I, I cannot see how you, you can do all that, Sam. No wonder you get up at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it, it's, you know, I, I think that it's really interesting because it's like, you know, you have to just, you know, and 
I, I think the only reason why I put up with it, honestly, because a lot of, I'm actually kind of, you know, appalled because I had, I had a phenomenal um, English teacher in high school who taught both of my advanced placement courses in uh, language and literature, uh, Lisa McClellan. So Ms. McClellan, if you're listening to this, you know, thank you for everything. But she was just so, um, so diligent about how not only we structured our writing, like I, I, every single one of my blog posts that I've ever written is still based in the format that she laid out for me. Every single one is still kind of, you know, framed completely by her. You talked about my vocabulary early. She stressed the importance of vocabulary on day one. Like these are, we had, and I was terrible at these because I, I just wanted to get into her class and write, but she made us take these um, massive vocabulary tests of these really hard words and match them up to definitions and everything. And I was so bad at it because I love the words. I just didn't like the whole, you know, the robotic, like matching up of the words throughout the whole thing. And so that was, um, but, you know, regardless, it was just kind of, you know, she stressed that, like, if you're going to say a claim, you need to be able to back up the claim with hard evidence with everything. And now, you know, I think the the same thing that you kind of hone in on that I hone in on is that we're so passionate about kind of what we want to put into the book that like this book, especially this next book that's coming out in November, I am so passionate about this topic. I am, I, I think, you know, the world needs that. And I hate to say this, but I think because it makes me sound like more important than I probably am, but like the world needs this book so much, in my opinion, that I need to have it just perfect, like down to the letter. And so I think that that's something that where it's like, you know, whether you're telling a good story, I believe the most important element to a good story, there are a lot of them, but I think passion has to be a part of it. And I know passion can have its, its, its virtues and its vices at the same time, but that was another question I wanted to ask you besides, and maybe passion is your answer, but what do you think the most important element of a good story is in general? Like when you're writing, if you say like, if I nail one thing, this is the thing I want to nail, what would that be for you? Oh, if I nailed one thing about that. Um, you know, I, I really, I, I really think you, when it comes to fiction, I really think that, you know, if it gives someone maybe an idea, for example, in Distilling Lies, about the importance of not giving up, uh, about right. the importance of, um, you know, again, in this case, it goes back to even your book, Sam, about values, you know, but about what are your values, your family, you know, what kind of... Um, you know, will the, the will the reader be engaged? For example, will they believe your dialogue? You know, which mm -hmm. is important in fiction. Will they? Is it is it believable? Will they? Uh, uh, will they be able to picture a, what the scene looks like? You know, are yeah. you descriptive enough? You know, so that there, if you're in a you know a, a setting like in. Uh, Rosie's Cafe, for example, and you're in that setting and it's 1928, you know, will you be able to, uh, you know, feel the, you know, the, the knife marks on the wooden tables, mm -hmm. you know, as you read it, for example, and, uh, you know, and so I, that I want them to be kind of uh, teleported into that uh that year you know yes. uh, into that setting in, into where you know um you know they can feel everything around them so right uh, that's not always easy to do you know because no, I, very I hard. Know in some situations you know i've had editors say to me you know well tell me about you know what do you mean about this and i'm like oh <laughs> 
oh yeah yeah write that I just had it in my head and I to like spit it was so real inside my head the vision the scene was so real inside my head that I just forgot to put in those little details for the reader, you know, because I'm thinking, oh, yeah, well, they can certainly see what I'm seeing. Well, obviously, you know, that's not the case. So yeah. you have to remember to insert those things. But, um, yeah, to make it real, I think, and, you know, engaging. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. It's, it's really hard. And I think it's especially hard in fiction, especially when you do kind of do go back into like a time travel scenario where you're going throughout like because you didn't live that era right like you have to really kind of stretch yourself to really put yourself in that position I think like people who are sci-fi writers or make sci-fi movies for example they really have to nail that because like if you can't create like the matrix for example like the matrix is probably one of the hardest things about about doing this is probably that they're creating like literally like an alternative reality inside of their head and that's kind of what you're doing inside of all fiction stuff but in really in your stuff is that you want to make sure that you have the setting nailed down. So, and this is actually the next thing I wanted to touch on going back to your characters so that your characters can thrive and the plot can thrive throughout that setting. And I think that leads me to there, there always seems to be, at least with me, I'm a, I'm a cinephile. I, I love movies. I love, I love books. Like I, 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 I love stories in general. And so for me, there's always kind of just a, and you can say this with like, you know, or see this with, uh, you know, authors, directors, actors, you know, there's always seemingly a big tension and it's not necessarily a bad one, but there's a definitely a tension between uh, plot and story and the characters within the plot and the story. And so I have a feeling I know where you're going to go on this, but like, what, what do you believe of the two is the most important for a creative work to thrive and why? Between plot and character, I, you know, um, in, in fiction, uh, authors write either plot driven or character driven stories and Mm -hmm. often i am am asked that question you know which is that which is you know in distilling lies which is it it's very hard for me to separate those two i guess i would i would say that in distilling lies it's character driven uh because of the emotions that are involved in it but of course you know you have to have a plot line and you have to you know uh you have to move forward to make it engaging and and uh, have events that uh, you know occur after one after another that keep you know piling up. But I really think because maybe because of my background, but they're you know the character driven to me uh, is the most important. I want to relate to that character. I want to mm-hmm. feel that character when I read as a reader. I want to feel yeah. that. No, you know, if, if it's just all a bunch of, you know, car chase scenes, I'm not going to, you know, right. it might be a little exciting, but, you know, that's not what I look for when I, uh, you know, uh, read and it's not how I write either. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I believe in the character driven more. Yeah. yeah. And that was actually, that was that. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I wanted to go back to what you were talking about, you know, looking in the past. I really thought, you know, somebody should come up with this thing where you, you, um, and I think we can do it now, but we're, I just wanted to like put on these glasses or even just go, you know, on, on my computer and look at what a street looked like in 1910, for example. Yeah, sure. That'd be great. You know, and see the setting. Now you could do it a little bit, you know, uh, on the internet and see bits and pieces of it, but not not so much. And I think, okay, well, now with Google Maps and uh, now with you know mm-hmm. being able to you know uh, 
what is it the live you know feeds that you can get and you can look at something yeah. wow what about writers in a hundred years from now will we still have that and they can just look at what the scene looked like yeah you know, yeah but anyway i digress no, I was going to say, I think that's a really cool idea, actually. Like, I mean, there's all the things around like AR, VR, you know, augmented virtual reality. And I think that one of the cool things maybe for, you know, maybe for research purposes, who knows, is that what if we took something like on, on like Peaky Blinders, for example, like a real a TV show about, you know, growing up in like 1920s, post-World War One England, and you could just beam yourself into like a scene of Peaky Blinders and you could see kind of like what the streets look like, like what people drove around, like the cars, like the, the, the clothing, the texture, you could, you could smell things, you could taste things, you can do whatever. And so I think that, you know, we're, I think we're decently far away from that, but I think that, you know, we can go to your point, like there is kind of the, the physical reality where we can go in Google maps or something and say, like, I want to see a 3d model of like this restaurant or this part of the earth. But I think overall and over time for research purposes, I definitely could see like, why don't we just go into like this one scene and like episode four of season three and like we see how all these things play out and whatever and I think it's really it, that would be a really interesting and really really cool concept to do and I think you know going off of of that a little bit you talk about you know your characters to me and I, I definitely want you to expand on this if you wouldn't mind it, your your characters seem very very personal to you and I think they are for like a lot of people that are fiction writers and who create just things out of their own head and so what parts of you do you leave inside of your characters? Like what is your personal relatability to all of them look like? Because it's different for every character, I would assume, because every character you literally have to create a personality, a life story, a background, something like that. So like how attached do you get to your characters when you're creating them? Um, it, it depends. For example, you know, my protagonist, there's actually two in my novel, Distilling Lies, uh, uh, Emma June, of course, she's 17 years old, and I'm, uh, you know, she's in, she's discovering herself and who she is, you know, uh, that she can be independent, and, um, and of course, I'm very interested, uh, not interested, but I'm very connected to her because of that, and then you have Frank, on the other hand, who's a little older, he's like 21, um, and he's his background is you know his his mother left him when he was two, and uh, he's struggling you know to be his own person. He wants to be a jazz mu musician, but circumstances throw him into this situation where you know um, uh, he has to make the best you know of uh, of not being able to follow up on his plans. You know he doesn't have a choice. Uh, he's thrown into something where he doesn't have a choice. And uh, and then you have, of course, Scooter, who I talked about earlier, who I think maybe was that little girl, you know, uh, yeah. that facility, you know, that I bonded to him and, uh, and I'm protective of him in the novel. Um, you know, I can't help but be. Um, and then you have uh, Miss Ada, who is a very strong character uh, who uh, unfortunately had to, you know, is survived, is a survivor of, uh, and was the mother of a, her son who was actually lynched because, because of the color of his skin. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, I'm very attached to her as well and 
not so attached to some of the bullies and the the criminals in the book. Yeah, you know, I found it very easy to like you know slander them. Yeah, <laughs> the right. Book. You know, yeah, hey, yeah. this is there, right? Um, that's where that instinct, I guess, kicked in. But it, nonetheless, they're there, and and um, I don't relate to them very well, but uh, mm-hmm. okay with the writing about them. Yeah, for sure. No, I I, th- I think it's it's also interesting because you have to write about like you know I I personally I have a actually pretty unique perspective on this I think, but like I think a lot of people like they they love to write about you know like the hero of the story, like the person they want to be, but then they have to write about like the opposition to that person, whether that's a, a really bad or nasty person or like an organization or something. Me, I I love uh, villain arcs in movies. And like, you know, there's the the classic line in, in Good, my favorite line from Goodfellas is that, um, you know, when Hen- when um, uh, Ray Liotta was describing Robert De Niro's character and he, his name is Jimmy and he's basically like, Jimmy was the guy who rooted for all the bad guys in the movies. And I was like, if that line could speak to any individual person, it would speak to me because I always find like villain arcs to be really, you know, and, and like the anti-hero arcs to be really, you know, superb and a lot of, you know, different stories and movies and television shows. And like, I'm, I, I have a very, I think I put on dark lenses to like view all my things because I always found that just, I don't know, more interesting, more fascinating, whatever that might be. But, you know, I, I find it kind of boring to write about a person that really, you know, kind of like a Superman type figure that like has everything kind of in line, like he's perfectly like morally virtuous and he has like everything, you know, in a row like this, like he, he can't like have any flaws. And, and I think that, you know, to, to your earlier point as well, like it's not something that I feel that everyone can relate to because I feel like everyone self-analyzes, especially now with social media and everything going along that the self-criticism I think really is a huge part of who we are now for better or for worse. And I think the more you can make those flaws and those things that, you know, the not so moral or virtuous characters do apparent to people, the more it humanizes them. And I think the more layered the story gets in a lot of ways. So it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting thing, but I think in kind of the inverse, that's kind of where I think, you know, characters are really, really important and really interesting. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, talking about a villain, there is a, A character in my novel who does go through all of those kinds of things you know um i didn't realize that uh at the time when i began writing his character i didn't realize oh yeah he's gonna go through a personal arc you know he's a he's a real ass and uh things are gonna happen here and you know is he gonna be an ass at the end of the story you know maybe not you Mm. know knows you know well i'm not going to give that away but you know yeah you know some will always remain an ass yes yep some will always remain that way and some will learn and some will grow you know and uh and that's what you always want with your uh, novels too you want your characters to grow they have to grow i mean that's just part of being uh you know a writer um or a novelist that uh Mm. that the reader has to see some kind of growth in, in the character. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, so given that, what do you feel for the characters you really are attached to and you really want to drive the plot of the story? What do you believe is the most important either motivating factor or drive for each character to have? And I don't know if this is an individual character question because they all have individual personalities or if you all want to have some kind of unifying trait between all of them. Like if you go to see like, a lead in a film or a lead in a television show, or you read a book and you see like a lead in character, what, what do you what, like, what do you want to see from 
that character that you think makes that character really good in your opinion? I think each one of my characters, um, they all have, of course, uh, different goals, different strategies for reaching those goals. Um, uh, you know, what drives Emma June, for example, is that she has to discover what happened to her mother and why did she disappear and where is she? Uh, and, and because uh, her family values, um, you know, at least at the beginning of the novel are, are, are very high, very strong. I mean, that's her motivating factor for, you know, uh, much of the book, you know, what happened and her independence all of a sudden is, uh, has grown, you know, she is no longer just, you know, Bernice's daughter. She is her own person and yeah. she is going to, she's determined. Um, and uh, and then you, you have Frank, who ha also is determined, but in, in very different ways. You know, he has his own path that he needs to follow in order to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I think those motivating factors, uh, they change, you know, from character to character. And uh, depending upon, uh, you know, the plot line and how much you want them to grow and how much you want them to change. Yeah. Of course. That's awesome. That's a great answer. Speaking of change, this is actually a good segue into the next question. What has been the biggest thing about your writing that has changed over time? And I'm assuming you feel like this change is good, but you, do you feel like the overall evolution of your writing process has been a constructive thing, both for you as the writer and for your writing in and of itself? Oh, of course. You know, uh, every time you write anything, you're going to get better at it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to learn from it. You're going to have, uh, you know, your comments from your readers or, you know, your beta readers or your, you know, family members or whatever, you're going to have comments from it. And, and of course, going back to research, you know, uh, you're, you're going to learn more about, um, you know, what makes an effective character, what makes the, you know, uh, the plot more enticing. And of course, one of the things that uh, I feel like I'm pretty good at is in, in fiction, there's a big thing called show versus tell. Mm -hmm. If you have, you know, a book that just tells you the story, then you're not going to be as, as engaged as a story that shows you, you know, um, yeah. what. so it, it, it's show versus tell. And I think that I've gotten, uh, you know, uh, better, at, at doing that and um you know i uh, always have red flags when i'm rereading it i'm going oh no i you know i can't yeah oh, oh, we don't need to tell them that we can show them that you know by your words and your descriptions and your dialogue definitely that's awesome so w getting into your latest book because i do want to plug your latest book distilling lies a lot at least and uh, we talked about it a good amount but now like want to talk about it more specifically what inspired the idea for the book and what is it about? What has the reception and success been like? And, you know, like, so kind of like what is, so I would say a couple of questions. So what inspired it? What's it about? And what has the reception been like so far from people who have either read it or reviewed it or, you know, just generally have bought it. I know we've talked about kind of, you know, those, the general reception from it, but what is it about and what's the reception been like so far since it's been out? Um, okay. Well, um, 
What is it about? Okay. Um, it's about a 17 year old girl who after a, an event at a carnival, uh, discovers that the next morning that her mother is missing and it is her determination to, I mean, it's her drive to figure that out. And there are, you know, several plot lines that kind of go in between that, um, where she has to battle family secrets and a corrupt uh, small town city um, yep. uh, officials and whatnot that she has to delve herself into uh, those secrets, the corruption that she learns about in the, um, you know, from the city in order to find out uh where her mother could possibly be mm -hmm. and you know there's a a lot of uh um betrayal that she has to witness you know she witnesses betrayal between family members between friends um and what it does is it kind of blows her security um everything that she thought was true maybe just isn't and maybe life isn't just a straightforward and this is where you go from here line. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, you know, not exactly an elevator pitch there, Sam, but it's kind of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, and where did it come from? You know, it's it's kind of funny, you, you know. Authors are always asked, you know, where did you where do you get your ideas from? Right, um, and it, it's it's a bad question. So feel free to kind of say it's a bad question, but it's yeah, it's it's, but, but it's yeah. a fun one. On the other hand, it's a fun one, you know, depending mm -hmm. on where it does come from. In this yeah. situation, I just had this image of this young girl standing on this porch back in some other time. Uh, watching her father walk away into this thicket of of trees and and she's standing there going where is he going and that he doesn't you know in in my vision he doesn't come back so I'm thinking whoa okay what what is that so then it all of all yeah originally it was called the moonshine thicket you know that was the original title um because obviously in this book, there's a lot of moonshine, it's prohibition, and yep. June's next door neighbor, uh, Miss Helen, she distills the best, you know. And, uh, but anyway, it just, it, those things just evolve. It took a long time from that. And that's not even part of the story now, you know. Uh, a girl watching her father disappear into a, a thicket of woods is not even part of the story. Yeah. But you just take those little tiny kernels you know, of thoughts and then just let them evolve, you know, let them plant in your brain. And that's, that's where they came from. Yeah. Uh, reception so far. Yeah. This reception's, you know, it's been good. Uh, I definitely need more readers and I need more reviews on Amazon. Uh, that would be awesome. Um, the people that uh, responded back, you know, have really liked the way that the, the character arcs, you know, um, are the uh, uh, the plot line, the surprises. Um, so, you know, I'm pleased with that. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and it kind of sends, ask one more question. I think just kind of overall, you said it's not really an elevator pitch, but, but I actually think it's a really interesting one because it's kind of just to me, at least it seems like just a general sense of a young girl losing her innocence in a lot of ways. Like she has like the veneers of childhood ripped from her and she has right. to grow up and become an adult like immediately, which is always a really, I, and we've seen, you know, countless examples of that in popular culture and different types of stories, but I think it, it opens you up to really, you know, being creative about how does that happen to this specific young woman in this specific instance, in this specific time. And I think that's, I think that's fascinating. I think it's a really, really interesting element to have. And I, I, I like I said, I've, I've kind of, you know, I've, I've gotten started into it a little bit at this point and it's, it's going to be a really exciting story to see develop, I think. Oh, good. Well, I hope so. I hope you enjoy it, Sam. Yeah, of course. And one last thing, just we generally kind of like to have, you know, just people, wise people that come on the show like yourself say like any advice you have or encouragement for either, you know, anybody really, but like, you know, particularly to this conversation, you know, young writers, older writers, readers, authors, like anything involving what you would have to say in terms of like, if you had to tell yourself something to lead to a successful outcome in one thing or another, what would that be? Uh Gosh, I think I would say as far as writing goes, that um, you don't you don't need to feel like you need to rush through, uh, throw a bunch of stuff on paper, you know, and, and hurry and get it done. Let go ahead and simmer. Let everything simmer for a little bit. Get your get your ideas together and let it evolve naturally, you know, with, uh, organically to see where it goes so you, that you can, you know, uh, come up with a better story that way and, uh, and not to give up, you know, there's, there's, uh, it, it giving up doesn't work. You can change things. You can, uh, I always like to say going from, you know, and plan A might not work nor plan B, but there's a C out there and that C <laughs> might be better than that A. You just don't know. Just listen to the universe, see what it tells you. Yeah, absolutely. Her name is Carolyn Dennis Willingham. Her latest book is Distilling Lies. And Carolyn, it was, this was this was fantastic. I I, I definitely want to do a second one. Maybe we can do, go into the you know if you know maybe when your next book comes out, when my next thing comes out, or we can just talk about go on shoot the shit, talk about you know early childhood, special needs kids, whatever you want to do. But this is fantastic. I I really appreciate you you bearing with me twice in one morning for the time. <laughs> you see me once in one morning. Uh, it was but- easy. Yeah, twice in one morning is is really awesome. So Carolyn, this is this is so great. So thank you for coming on and being being a great sport and being a great guest. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. Really appreciate your time. Awesome. Well, to everyone else, thank you for listening. Uh, another uh, original episode coming out next week. We have another fantastic guest lined up for two weeks. But until then, on the day, open your mind and thanks for listening, everybody. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight slip?